The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 26th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, President Donald Trump announced that, quote, the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. All right, let's look at the words, accept or allow. Accept, not actually a change of policy. Secretary of Defense Mattis said accepting new enlistees was still a policy under consideration. Allow is a big change, and the White House had no further explanation of what a ban would mean for the trans individuals already told they could serve in the military. Rand says there are between two and 3,000 of them. Kicking them out would seem to directly undermine one of the justifications Trump gave for his action, citing trying to avoid, quote, disruption. This is something that social conservatives have wanted for a while, though there were a couple dozen Republicans who joined with all the Democrats to defeat a bill in Congress which would defund surgery for treatment of military members pursuing gender reassignment. But most social conservatives, most conservatives do want this. Finding cause with conservatives, as he knifes one of their own, Jeff Sessions, in the back, maybe you could say, well, that's savvy politics by Trump. In the sense that throwing a Hail Mary on fourth down is a savvy football play after you fumbled on downs one through three. Also, we should note, it is a betrayal of one of his pledges. I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. Wait, let me amend my statement. Listen to that. He only vowed to protect LGBTQ from a hateful foreign ideology, not a hateful domestic one. Tricky, Trump, tricky. But even if I can totally see why a social conservative would not want the military and their tax dollars going to gender reassignment surgery, you know who couldn't see it? The Pentagon. They didn't see it coming. Trump has this habit of blindsiding those he is said to command. There was the first travel ban. The Pentagon will ask the White House to exempt Iraqis who have helped the U.S. military from President Donald Trump's controversial 90-day ban on immigration. There was his threat of a second strike on Syria over chemical weapons. And it causes some challenges because the command, Central Command, uh, claimed last night they had not heard anything about a potential strike. So we're talking also about the challenges associated with communication and collaboration. And then there was this proclamation. We are sending an armada, very powerful. We have submarines, very powerful, far more powerful than the aircraft carrier, that I can tell you. But cut to a week later. I tried reaching out to CENTCOM, uh, the the part of the military that- Central that, Command, yeah. Central Command that deals with this part of the world. And, and they said, we have nothing to add to the White House statement. Trump has always maintained he prizes unpredictability. It keeps your enemies guessing. Well, in his case, it keeps his allies guessing. And not just his allies, the very military tasked with carrying out his supposed surprise attacks. Of course, the truth is, he's not engaged in strategic unpredictability. He's given to spasmodic irrationality. This is not a plan to stick and jab. This is just herky-jerky. The snake can strike unexpectedly, but at least he knows where his fangs are headed. 
This is just another example of haphazard, half-assery in the guise of surprise. And if you don't want to hear me say it, listen to this former general guy. Could be just considered a, a mistake or a miscommunication between the Navy and the Pentagon and the Pentagon and the White House. That's fine. You have mistakes at some times in military operations. But when you have these kinds of mistakes and it sends uh, an indicator that there is a lack of coordination, a lack of coordinated effort, it could be problematic to both friends and foes alike. And with that, General Mark Hurtling unsheathed his saber and cut off his own ear because unpredictability. On the show today, I spiel about the mooch. The mooch. Can't get too much of the mooch. But first, I've had a lot of thoughts on the white working class as of late. They are pivotal. They are disaffected. But in key areas, they are wrong, right? Joan Williams, professor at UC Hastings School of Law and author of The White Working Class is Here with some of the best ways to think about this large, large demographic group that remains so unknown. So, when you leave the two-thirds of Americans without college degrees out of your vision of the good life, they notice. They notice a lot. They notice when you talk down to them. They notice when your cultural references are different from them. They notice when you casually blame them for their own predicament in a way that you wouldn't almost any other American. The very first sentence comes right from the book, White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America by Joan C. Williams. The rest of it was uh, my gloss that I added on after reading the book. Hello, Joan. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So it seems like America or the rest of America that isn't in middle America discovered all these middle Americans, all these white working class voters, and they discovered them because they surprisingly tipped the election. It was a shock to the people who sought to explain how anyone could vote for Donald Trump. Was it a shock to you? No, I actually expected him to win. Why? Here I was in San Francisco going down with increasingly frantic frequency to the Hillary Clinton headquarters uh, here in Van Ness because I just had a really, really creepy feeling about this. <laughs> and, and was that creepy feeling have a blonde pompadour and orange skin? Or was there something else? <laughs> yes, it did. I remember, actually, I did a lot of phone banking, and I was talking to a Latina voter who— mm -hmm. um, said she wasn't going to vote. And I said to her in Spanish, es un hombre bien peligroso. And I thought, wow, if I have to be explaining that he's a dangerous man to Latinas, like we are kind of up a creek. I think he got something like 29% of the uh, Latino vote. And the thing that she or Latino voters glommed onto was not a particular policy, right? It was what? His affect, the fact that he just took the time to say, I care about you. What was it that was appealing about Trump to uh, the working class, even not the white working class? I mean, I think there are things that it was kind of a twofer. There were things that were truly off-putting about Hillary Clinton, and there were things that were truly appealing about Trump. What was appealing about Trump, first of all, is he was talking about jobs, <laughs> He was addressing himself directly to people without college degrees. Not elegantly, he talked about them as the, the uneducated. I love the uneducated. But Democrats since the 1970s have become increasingly focused on the college-educated elite, of which I am one. I mean, I'm a caricature. I went to Yale, Harvard, and MIT. 
But I also married into a white working class family 40 years ago. And, you know, not everybody talks like we do. And so they really appreciated the fact that Trump talked to them in very direct, emotionally connected ways and didn't give them a 643-item platform and uh, expect them to read that Jobs was, you know, number 432. He talked to them in a way that they felt wasn't talking down to them. And then, of course, there was a lot of racial anxiety, and he brought people to their worst selves. And so he connected with them in that way as well. So Democrats, in their analysis and their autopsy, either admitted or were forced to admit we had bad messaging on economics. We just saw Chuck Schumer debut the better deal, got derided for some of the messaging around the new message. But the idea was, and this has gone on with campaigns ever since I've been paying attention, you lost, oh, we didn't get our message out. How important is the message on the economic issues and how important is that the message isn't attached to real tangible policy on the economic issues? Campaigns are not won or lost on policy papers. And I think Democrats often forget that. Democrats, when they talk about economic equality, they often talk about equal opportunity, which people understand as a coded word for for racial equality. And they talk about college for all. And I've been a university professor since I was 28 years old. I'm not against college for anyone who wants to go and has the talent and dedication to do it. But two-thirds of Americans do not have college degrees. And Democrats have included very little for those folks, except for the bottom 30% of Americans who have truly low incomes. Now, for them, minimum wage is like a huge issue because they'd much rather be earning $15 an hour than $7.50. But for these so-called white working class, who, by the way, are really the middle class, the middle 53% of Americans, minimum wage jobs are what they're trying to avoid. So Obama, who wasn't dinged as a guy who didn't get the white working class or who did a lot better and, you know, was elected twice because even though— Well, he's a member of a white working class family, by the way. Yes, of course. I mean, he was a member of a white middle class family. Right, right? and he would always take in—he would always take pains to point out, I understand this because you're my grandmother and maybe people, if they saw him or watched the coverage of him on Fox, wouldn't think that he's anything but the son of a Kenyan. But of course, he would always say this. But were his jobs policies actually— supplying those uh, stable three-bedroom, two-bathroom houses. It would seem like he and Joe Biden and some of the politicians who aren't as criticized as Hillary Clinton was, and I think the criticism was warranted, but some of the Democrats who, quote-unquote, get it, do they really get it on a policy basis or they just had an affect that the white working class liked better? Well, first of all, I think Hillary Clinton wasn't given a pass on much of anything because she was a white woman, but different issue. She lost for five independent reasons, but shame on us that it was so close that any one of those things could tip the balance. In fact, the Obama administration had some really good jobs programs. But I think that the way that Hillary Clinton's campaign was run was singularly class clueless. Which is pretty ironic, because when I started writing about class, the initial essay was called Obama Eats Arugula. (laughs) 
talking about him talking about arugula to, I think it was Ohio voters, and them going like, what's arugula? Maybe it's Hawaiian. (laughs) And I was going like, it's not a Hawaiian thing, but it is an elite thing. And he didn't understand that. She was all over the red lobster vote. I think it was in 2008, because she was listening to Bill, who was incredibly effective at channeling this group. And then she stopped listening to Bill because she was listening to the group that said, white working class, we're going to write them off. We're just going to go with people of color. That's the strategy of the Democratic Party. That was, uh, I think, what was going on this time in Hillary Clinton's inner circle. And that was why, even as people were begging her to come to Michigan, Wisconsin, she did not go because... Her people were going like, those people are dusted. We don't care about them anymore. And my reaction is like, do you understand now why they don't vote for you? I think that if you ask them, are you writing them off? They would say no, but the evidence was there. They weren't doing much to reach out to them. I think they would also say, well, they're intellectual people. And they would say, well, just look at the policies. Our policies are better for those voters. And as you point out and other people have, a lot of these issues are extremely complex. And so what voters do is as a proxy for figuring out if TPP would or wouldn't help them, you just kind of go with, well, who seems to get me and have my interests at heart? And it wasn't her. I think Clinton was focused on Trump and saying, I'm so qualified, I'm so qualified, he's so unqualified because of a pattern of gender bias that I have and others have documented. I call it prove it again, that women Mm -hmm. have to be more competent than men in order to be seen as equally competent. So she was in this tight gender frame. The only problem is being in that tight gender frame, she kept saying, look how competent I am and all I've accomplished. And one of the cultural differences between this middle-class group I'm talking about they have a really strong norm against self-promotion. So she was thinking that she was fighting a gender battle, but she was actually, and winning, but she was actually fighting a class battle and losing. Republicans actually get this. They totally get it. Democrats don't get it. I hope they do now. So the voters with a strong norm against boasting and self-promotion voted for Donald Trump? Yeah, but, you know, for women... For, as opposed to men. Yes. She could prove that well, he's I mean, less likable, but it doesn't matter so much if a man is less yeah, likable. Yeah. yeah. Like he was less likable, but it didn't matter because if you're a man, you can be either a good man or a real man. And we know which Donald <laughs> chooses. Anyway, there's a lot of class anger against professionals, but there's a lot of admiration for the rich because that's what these folks want. They are order takers whose fantasy is to be an order giver, you're fired. And that was also pulling very hard for Trump and against Hillary. When you're talking about different norms and different values they had, another one that you write about, look at how the working class looks at disruption. So Democrats will say, hey, we're not anti-business. We love business. Just look at Silicon Valley. Look at all these disruptors. But what the working class, when they hear disruption, they think, oh, that'll get me fired. They're into putting your head down and doing a good job. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the core things that my crowd has to understand. The core of life and what I call the professional managerial elite, the the PME, is the ethic of self-development. It starts when we're very young, when, you know, it's our mother's job description to discover every little micro talent the minute we have it and develop it. Then it turns into 
We want jobs that are very challenging, and we're privileged so we can get those kinds of jobs. We are very into issues that are tied up in personal self-development. One that's very near and dear to me is abortion rights. I mean, without abortion rights, women's access to self-development will always be fragile. LGBTQ issues, another, you know, sexuality is so precious, so important. You should be able to be authentic. But in the white working class, being disruptive just gets you fired. Feeling entitled to self-development is an expression of class privilege. And so their ethic is really one much more of self-discipline, the kind of self-discipline that gets you to show up at a fairly routine job every day for 40 years in a row, not have an attitude, and get fired. And so they're attracted to institutions that aid in self-discipline, the military, religion, traditional families. My crowd just looks down on traditional family values and says, oh, that's just misogyny. Looks uh, at the religion and says, oh, that's just chauvinism. My values are the values of the college-educated elite. But, you know, I'm also kind of a postmodernist. I understand how my values are the expression and make sense within my life. We can't expect elite values from people to whom we haven't given elite lives. They don't have them. That's not what makes sense to them. We have to understand that. I mean, we're supposed to be the intellectuals. Fine. Let's intellectualize and understand that we need to make an imaginative leap and connect with these people, not in an empathetic way. They do not want empathy because it feels like condescension to them. They want respect. And that's what we owe them because these are the people who make our lives possible. The reason that there's water when we turn on the faucet is their jobs, not our jobs. Do politicians like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren understand how to talk to the white working class in this non-condescending way? Or is it more that they have very populist policies that kind of cuts through if you've ever made a reference to arugula? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. You know, Elizabeth Warren comes from a white working class family. Um, but so does Hillary and, Clinton. Uh, like, so many of these politicians mm, weren't born to the matter. She comes, you know, uh, if I remember correctly, Elizabeth Warren, who I used to teach with, has uh, brothers in blue-collar jobs. Okay. Hillary Clinton comes from a middle-class family. Uh, I think it's really a little bit different. And I think that... I mean, one of the things that I was really, really pleased about when I read the Democratic message, wasn't crazy about the tagline, but I think the message itself is a really good one. And they're talking about a rigged system. Why? Because the system is rigged. The mainstream Democrats are reaching out to the Sanders voters and saying, you know what? The system is rigged. My reaction is, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I needed to hear that. But not only do I need to hear that as kind of a intellectual of the left or whatever the hell I am, but I think people in the white working class, Trump used this very similar language. And my reaction is, again, that's not because they're stupid. That's because they're smart. The system is rigged. So let's say it. How do Democrats get wisdom on some of your ideas? Because it seems to me, if there is a demographic group that you're under-addressing and you actually do legitimately want to speak to them, not just create a fig leaf. 
you know, if you if you aren't speaking well to the LGBT community, you could go out and hire great consultants and talk to a lot of people who are smart and in academia or in politics, and they'll tell you how to talk to them. The same with the black community. If you're not doing well with that and you really do want to have better relations, talk to them in a way they understand. But how do you get a white working class person to the upper reaches of a political campaign? Because by the time they take that job, they might be, as you call it, a class migrant and have grown up in that milieu 25 years ago. But by the time they have the ear of a presidential candidate, they're no longer white working class. My book, White Working Class, started out as uh, an essay in the Harvard Business Review, that well-known organ of the left. And even in the original essay, I included links to books about the white working class. And in the white working class book, I actually have a reading list at the end. It's short, it's very curated, but it's very important reading list. Because the things I'm saying, I mean, they partly stem from my own life. I have been bridging that class culture gap for 40 years straight, 40 years next year, actually. But there's a, a big literature on this. I'm not the only person who understands this. I'm just, I have made an attempt to read every single book about the white working class written since about 1976, every single ethnography. The single best one is Michelle Lamont's The Dignity of Working Men, which compares black and white blue-collar guys. But at the at the end of the white working class, my white working class, there were like six or seven books that if you read those books, you would understand this class culture gap. I don't think it's rocket science. I just think this has been a sort of sideline that a few people care about, but is kind of optional if you're progressive. You totally care about environmental things. You totally care about gender issues, which is what I've worked on my pretty much my whole life. You totally committed to LGBTQ rights. But, you know, you might be interested in class, but you probably don't know much about it. And the other thing I think has been become increasingly optional is workers' rights. You know, look at the some of the companies that we celebrate. They are terrible <laughs> on workers' rights. That's optional. Some people care about them. Some people don't. But it's not part of the class act of being a high-status progressive intellectual to care about them. More shame on us. White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America by Joan C. Williams. Thank you so much, Joan. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. And now the spiel. The White House head of communications is the mooch, Anthony Scaramucci. He was on all the Sunday shows, and then the late night shows were on him. Trevor Noah of The Daily Show. And he's like, you know, I only said those things because I didn't think you would win. Then you won, right? Now it's over. Hey, we those kinds of guys. I was breaking balls. I was breaking balls. Am I right? I was just breaking balls, right? And Stephen Colbert. Anthony Scaramucci, special skills, being a joke, Trump hanging on and whacking stoolies. And then Seth Meyers, who called him a human pinky ring. I don't know who this anonymous person is that said that if the Russians had actually done it, we, we wouldn't have been able to detect it. But it is the unanimous. How about it was the president? 
How about it was the president, Jake? You like that? The president told me that. Then he nailed a three-foot putt. Hey, sweetheart, can we get some more bread over here? There's one thing I've noticed about Damooch. It's that people love saying Damooch. And you know what? Nicknames are fun. And there are only like two or three acceptable accents left in public discourse, and no one knows how to do Walloon. But as I listened to these takes on his moochness, it struck me that the comedians were doing an impression of their impression of what a guy like the mooch should sound like, rather than what he actually sounds like. I mean, let's listen to Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, in his initial introductory press conference. They have to unencumber themselves. You know, it's, it's just a very interesting thing, and it's somewhat ironic. You want to go serve the country, and so the first thing you have to do is take on this mega opportunity cost by getting rid of all of your assets. And so, but I'm willing to do that because I love the country. If this guy were a real Kanasi guy, he'd have said unencumbered, but he said unencumbered. They make it sound like he's in one of those movies featuring two cast members of The Sopranos who aren't the good ones. Uncle Junior and Richie April, as you have never seen them before. Mama Luke over Miami. But you know, maybe I'm not the best judge of Scaramucci's accent. He is from Port Washington in Long Island. I am from Oceanside, which is sometimes called the Port Washington of the South Shore. No, sorry, it's not. Port Washington would be appalled to hear that. But all I'm saying is that, you know who else has been accused of having a New York accent, two thumbs, a podcast, and ignorance about the ability to see a guy's thumbs over a podcast? This guy. So I needed to combat homo accental deafness. That's a real thing. I made up the phrase, but it's the idea that people of one accent can't really hear that accent in other people. So here's what I did. I went out and assembled an award-winning panel of the otherly accented. Hello? Let's go around, and why don't you uh, say your name, what you do here at Slate, and where you got your accent. All right, so I'm Kristen Meinzer, and according to some people, I have a real thick Minnesotan accent. I'm from Minnesota originally, and I co-host a reality show podcast called By the Book here. And in that show, my co-host and I live religiously according to the rules of a different self-help book in each episode – much to the detriment of our marriages and happiness. <laughs> Shasha. Um, hi, my name is Shasha Pong Leonard, and I do IT here at the Slate Group. Where are you from? I am from France. Uh, no, it doesn't sound it, but go ahead, <laughs> sound French for us. Uh, I'm from France, and uh, I, uh, I came here for college, and <laughs> when I came here, I didn't have much of an accent to begin with, so I, I try not to force it, but it does come out when I drink a little. All right, and Amanda, you're also from uh, China and France, right? Uh, just a little bit south, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Amanda McCartney, and um, I work at the Slate Group. I'm in sales, uh, and I'm from North Carolina. As you can probably hear, a lot of people think I'm from Texas, yeah. but I'm not. I'm from North Carolina. But no one from North Carolina would think you were from Texas. Never. Yeah. Yeah. And no one from Texas would think you were from Texas. Never. Yeah. That's just our ignorance. So on the theory that it's hard to hear your own accent, I'm going to play you a guy and I'd like to uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on maybe, well, if you do know who this is, don't say it at first or you could indicate to me that you know who it is and then we'll talk about the accent. So can we play that, Chris? I've written three books, The Little Book of Hedge Funds, Goodbye Gordon Gecko. Now, millennials, Alan, they don't even know what, who Gordon Gecko is. I, I, honestly, God, isn't that amazing? But anyway, he was an avatar of greed in the 1980s, uh, so I'm dating myself. And my new book, which just came out this week, is called Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, 
how entrepreneurs turn failure into success. Uh, somebody said on one of these shows, it's at finer bookstores. It's even at the less fine bookstores, okay? Okay, good. Yeah. Do any of you guys know who it is? Somebody from Long Island. <laughs> you think it's Long Island, for sure. What, what, what do you think? What'd you hear? That sounded like a neutral American accent to me. All right. And what do you think, Amanda? It's kind of like a Yankee, I think, from the Northeast. Okay. Well, you are right, Kristen. It oh. is Anthony Scaramucci. Oh, wow. He loves Mark Twain. And yeah. he talks like that. He does wow. Like <laughs> but as you have heard him, or maybe you've seen people talk about him, my contention is when people do impressions of Scaramucci, it seems like they do really harsh New York Goodfellas type impressions. So as a New Yorker, uh, well, you said he was a New Yorker or Long Island person on a scale of uh, one to Amy Fisher or one to jo- <laughs> the scale of one to Joey Buttafuoco. Where is this guy? He's not a Joey Buttafuoco, but he is maybe a six or seven. Oh, OK. Pretty. Yeah, he's pretty moderate Long Island. It's not. Yeah. And if now that you know who it is and he is from Long Island, does that surprise you, Amanda? Uh, no. Mm-mm. Could be anyone. So how Yankee did he sound? Mm, about an eight. OK, pretty, uh, pretty Yankee. And what mm-hmm. do you think? I didn't hear it at all. At all? No, actually, the only American accent that I, it's like the Texan accent, like yeah. the, all, the Southern accents all kind of sound the same to me. But like, I would give that a two. I think we've either proved my point. I think that Americans, people who grew up in America, scan that guy, code that guy as maybe Long Island, Brooklyn, New York, but an unbiased observer, it might not be so prominent. But when you when you watch The Sopranos, Shasha, or Goodfellas, or a mob show, or a show with a lot of New York accents, like that doesn't just seem like some people from Nebraska talking, does it? No, that, that to me is the mobster accent. Yeah, well, that's the mobster. <laughs> and he did not have the mobster accent. No, no, not not to me at all. Um, my, my boyfriend's mother actually has a really, she says coffee and... Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't notice it at all in when he spoke. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So I think this averages out to uh, five and a half, I think, New Yorker Yankee accent. Eight plus six plus two. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Oh, gosh. Real good. Thank you. It's real good there. Uh, thank you very much. Thank y'all. Thank you, guys. This all makes me wonder. Were all the Jeff Sessions jokes, I don't know, maybe to an Alabama, and they seemed like they were just picking on a guy who talked normal. Maybe to pompadour to orange folk, Trump seems pretty run-of-the-mill. Or maybe Scaramucci, a man who cut his conscience to suit the administration, knows how to play to the crowd that he's talking to. Here he was in 2010 on a CNBC segment with President Obama. When are we going to stop wagging at the Wall Street pinata? And how are we going to fix that arbitrage so that we can create jobs in our society? Yeah, stop whacking us like a pinata. I know we didn't say it exactly like that, but it was bordering. It was in the neighborhood. Give up doing the fun mooch impression over here? I would advise that you forget about it. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube is the GIST producer. Hey, it's Chris Berube. And where'd Mary Wilson just producer go? Wilson, what is that, like Dutch? Is that like Dutch or something? AC Valdez gave us editing help. Yeah, Valdez, he's a good guy. He's from the neighborhood. You know, he's with, uh, he used to hang out with, uh, was it Big Petey and Little Paul? No, it was Little Paul and Big Petey and Valdez. They were good people. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. You know, they say licking a tie is like kissing your sister, which in the case of your sister, oh my God, the mustache on her. I'd be plucking hair out of my bicuspids for a week over here. 
The Gist, the official podcast of the Italian-American Anti-Defamation League. Hey, you defaming my auntie? My Aunt Rosemary Romat? What the hell is wrong with you? Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.